Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, good morning to you. Happy Memorial Day uh, weekend. Hey, before we get into our passage for this morning, I want to take just a minute or two and recap uh, the huge announcement that we made last week uh, in case you were not here uh, last week. If you haven't heard yet, an incredible opportunity has come our way that we never thought was even going to be possible, and that is this. We'll show this on the screen for you. Uh, the corner lot, which is just immediately north of here, I'm pointing even the right way, that's incredible. Uh, that purple 2.3 acres there used to have a Shell gas station on it. Uh, it was supposed to be a wedding event center that was going to be built. All of that has fallen through. That lot has just become available and we were able to sign a purchase agreement to purchase that lot just weeks before it went back out on the market. And we are currently in agreement to hopefully close on that piece of property uh, sometime this summer. And that is amazing. This is huge, absolutely huge for our church. As we are growing super fast as a church, well, one of the things that we realized is our biggest choke point actually is parking. And it's going to continue to be so even when we expand someday in the future. In fact, when we expand, we could be up to 100 parking spots short in the next phase of this church expansion where this corner lot solves all of that because we can easily put 100 parking spots on that piece of land when we expand. So that's just, it's just amazing. It's just such a God thing. Uh, that property itself costs $1.3 million. If that sounds like a lot to you, uh, it is a corner lot on one of the biggest, best corners in all of the city. And so it's a pretty amazing that we have an opportunity to get it. Our bank, uh, on short notice, has said they will give us a loan for $1 million. So if you're doing the math there, uh, we need to come up with a down payment of $300,000 uh, in a pretty short amount of time. So one of the things we did, we kind of uh, copied a little bit of a, a biblical example here. If you read in the Old Testament, King David, when they're raising funds for the temple in Jerusalem, he goes and he talks with all of his leaders first, and they give first. And so we actually did the same thing. I met with all sort of leaders, key drivers of our church, and I asked them to give first. And they have given already, so we're trying to get to 300000 they have already given $192,000. Not like pledged, like they already gave it. That's amazing. And so that means uh, we have $108,000 left to raise. So this is what we're going to do. Next week, on June 5th, we are going to do a one-day special offering. We're not going to drag this out. Um, we just don't have time to in some sense. We're just on one day. At the end of the service, we are going to pray the impossible, and we're going to ask the Lord to bring in $108,000 in one day so that we can secure this piece of land. Because if we don't get it, guess what? Somebody else is going to buy that piece of property. And so we want to seize this uh, opportunity. If you're like, ah, I'm going to be out of town next week. Uh, what do I do? There's a couple things you can do. You can actually give online or through our app. You just have to make sure that you select on the drop down the corner lot fund. Otherwise, it's just going to go into the general fund. Or even better, if you can, you don't have to, but if you can, out on the table today, uh, there are little corner lot envelopes. Uh, you can give through that, just again, so we know what it's going towards. Or you can even drop off a check this week at the office. The only reason that makes a difference is if you're giving uh, to this lot, and you're giving, especially if you're giving something significantly, anytime you give online, three to four percent of that goes right to Visa and MasterCard, right? And I'm sure they're great companies, but I know that's probably, you're not thinking, like, I really want to help out Visa. They seem like they're hurting. Okay. So. <clears throat> If you have any questions about this, uh, ask a leader, ask me after the service. We'd love to answer that for you. Okay, uh, last week we finished our uh, three-week series on Philemon. Uh, next week we're going to start our summer series. And uh, once again, uh, we are going to be studying an important figure from the Old Testament for the summer. So uh, this summer we're going to be studying the life of, I should have had like a drum roll or something, right? The life of Joshua, uh, which is going to be kind of fun. We're going to take all summer to work through the book of Joshua 
So many cool stories in Joshua, right? You have Joshua in the battle of Jericho, uh, Rahab and the spies, uh, the sun stands still. Uh, what else? You got uh, the, the parting of the Jordan River. They take the 12 stones out. Just uh, so many amazing stories. And so we're excited to teach through that uh, this summer. But here we are. It's Memorial Day weekend. We're kind of in between series. We have a one week here. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to teach from a super obscure passage in the book of Jeremiah, okay? And I can almost guarantee you, with like 99.9% confidence, that you have never, and I mean never, heard a sermon before from Jeremiah chapter 35 and the Rechabites. But we're going to do it today, and it's going to be incredible. Here's how we got here. Uh, About six months ago, I was uh, having breakfast, and I always read the Bible at breakfast, And I was reading through the book of Jeremiah, and I got to this chapter. I thought, this is amazing. This is so relevant even to what we're going through today. i got to preach on this sometime. Well, this is that sometime. Uh, And partly, I just want to show you that all of God's word is living and active. It all speaks. Even passages buried deep within the book of Jeremiah are so relevant and helpful to us today. Okay, because we're kind of jumping into a random passage, we don't normally do this, Let me just take a minute or so and give you some context. Like, where are we in history if we're in Jeremiah chapter 35? So if you back up about 3,000 years, about 1,000 years before Jesus, God's people, the Israelites, actually divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Well, eventually, Israel becomes essentially no more. They're exiled, and you just have Judah is left. And that's all that's left at this time of this story in Jeremiah, which is in about 600 BC, 600 years before Christ, right? And so the capital of Judah is Jerusalem. And this whole area is in peril. And I'm going to explain to you why. Why don't you grab your Bibles while we do that? So there's a Bible under every chair. It's not going to be on the screen or anything. We want you all to open it. Uh, Page 444, if you don't have your own Bible, Jeremiah chapter 35. So you've got Judah. Capital is Jerusalem. Uh, Over from the, let's see, this side here, uh, the, the Babylonians are coming, right? And they're invading the land. In fact, they've already come into Jerusalem and they've exiled out the elites, They take all the really smart and rich people away. So uh, people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've already been taken away at this point. And Babylon is threatening to destroy the whole city and exile everyone off to Babylon at this point in 600 BC. However, the Lord has been using this incredible man, a prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah keeps telling everyone in Jerusalem, listen, You need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to trust God again. Stop trusting in yourself and praying to all these idols. If you would just trust God, you could stay in the land and live in the land, and God would be good to you. Just obey him. But the people again and again refuse to obey. Okay, so that's what's happening. Let's take a look at the story now. So Jeremiah chapter 35. uh, We're going to do the whole chapter. So we're starting right at verse 1. It says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one side of the rooms of the house of the Lord. Uh, So he's supposed to get this family, kind of a clan, if you will, of Rechabites. And the house of the Lord is the temple. So the Rechabite clan is supposed to come to the temple and give them wine to drink. So I went to get Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, the temple, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdaliah, the man of God. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over that of Masiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Okay, just for a second. There's a ton of names here. You're like, oh, I don't know what's happening. This is all you really need to know. 
Uh, everybody in those days named their kids ending in Aya, right? Kind of like every baby name ends with, was it N or Ava or something today, right? That was all the rage. Um, there's a lot of historical names here. This is not a legend. This is a true story. But all you really need to know is you got a bunch of Rechabites, they're in the temple, and then this happens, verse 5. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the Rechabites, and I said to them, drink some wine. Okay, let's, let's just pause there just for a minute. Who are these Rechabites, and why in the world does Jeremiah want them to drink wine in front of everybody? This is kind of a curious scene. So the Bible tells us that the Rechabites are actually descendants of, they, they can trace their ancestry all the way back to Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. So they're kind of like cousins of the Israelites. They followed the Israelites long ago out of the desert, through the wilderness, into the promised land, and they've been living amongst them ever since as followers of the one true God, devoted followers. But what's the deal with the wine? Okay, it's going to explain that. So verse 6 now. But they replied, we do not drink wine because our forefather, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will have a long time in the land where you are nomads. We have obeyed everything our father, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we, nor our wives, nor our sons or daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in and have vineyards, fields, or crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather, Jehonadab, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, Come, we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian and Aramean armies. So we have remained in Jerusalem. Okay, let's pause there for a number of minutes. Again, it's the year 600 BC. Now, about 250 years before this story, so roughly 850-ish BC, Jehonadab, who was this really influential, important member of this Rechabite family, he helped Jehu purge Israel from the wicked family of Ahab and Jezebel. We studied them last summer. And he helps Jehonadab, helps the Israelites get back to worshiping God again instead of the Baals and the idols. Now, if I just said a whole bunch of words that went, woo, I have no idea who any of those people are, that is totally fine, okay? Some of you are just getting into this. You can study the book of 1 Kings this summer. Uh, we studied that last summer. It's an amazing book in the Bible. Here's all you really need to know. Our key family for today is the Rechabites. 250 years before the story, they had a key member of their family named Jehonadab. And Jehonadab was so influential, people listened to him, and he told his family members and their future descendants that they were supposed to pass it on, that his family would no longer ever drink wine, they were never supposed to own a home, they were essentially never supposed to have a farm, and they were supposed to live as nomads in tents. Now, let me just pause for a second, because some of you are sweating, and you're going, oh no, my wine tasting days are over, aren't they? Okay, well, you, that's between you and the Lord. I don't know how much tasting you're doing, okay? <laughs> but let me just tell you, you just relax a little bit. This is not a passage about whether or not wine is sinful, okay? If it was, if it were, you, you'd actually have to be equally as nervous about home ownership, okay? And so, by the way, if you've never been trained before in how to study meaning in the Bible, how to look for the author's intent, as we describe it, uh, this is a perfect time for you to take studying God's word this summer or any class. We teach you how to do that. But here's the thing. This is actually a passage about obedience. 
not about wine. So the Rechabites, their views on home ownership and wine, they were a self-imposed family conviction. Kind of like as individuals, you can have a conviction that you have, like, I just need to serve God in this way. But you wouldn't necessarily impose it on everyone else. So God never commanded the Rechabites not to drink wine or anything like that. Maybe this will help. A really good uh, modern-day parallel to the Rechabites would be the Amish. So the Amish and the Rechabites are both groups of people who really for generations have passed down customs where they believe they are being extra devoted to God by shunning a life of comfort. Okay, so you've got this influential figure, Jehonadab. He says, all right, nobody can own a home. None of you can drink wine. And for 250 years, kind of like the Amish, really, his descendants, they fully obey him. So now, back to our story. You've got Jeremiah. He brings his whole clan, this unique group of people, the Rechabites, into the temple. A ton of people are there, right? The religious leaders are there. Everybody knows what the Rechabites are like, and they've got these unique views. Jeremiah sets them out in front of everyone, puts a bunch of wine on the table, and says, hey, drink up. What? What is happening? Well, it's a test. Now, the Lord knows it's a test that they're not going to fail, okay? Uh, James tells us that God does not tempt us. It would be like, I mean, there's no chance that they're going to fail us. It would be like you coming on stage and telling me to put on a Packers jersey, okay? I would say, do you have a lighter, okay? It's just like there's no chance that I'm going to fail that test that you would bring to me. Same thing here. There's zero chance. And so the Rechabites essentially say, like, is this a joke? Like, for 250 years, we've not drunk wine, and we're absolutely not going to do it now. So why is God doing this? He's not making a point about wine or home ownership or anything like that. He's making an incredible point about obedience. Now, before we keep reading, let me just say one more thing. Uh, We teach through the Bible at this church, and so that gives us kind of a wide variance of the types of messages that we get. Sometimes you'll come to church and you'll hear like a really intellectual message, and your mind is just going, oh, wow, i got to think through this. Sometimes you hear a really practical message, and you're taking notes going, okay, I'll do this, step one, and I I could work with my spouse on this, step two. And sometimes the Bible gives us these messages that just cut to our heart, and they're hard, and you're almost gripping your chair while you're listening. This is the part of the message where you start gripping your chair, okay? All right, verse 12, here we go. Verse 12 says this. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go and tell the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, Will you not learn a lesson and obey my words? declares the Lord. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his descendants not to drink wine, And his command has been kept to this day. They do not drink wine because they obey their forefather's command. But I have spoken to you. But I have spoken to you again and again. Yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you'll live in the land I have given to you and your ancestors. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefather gave them. But these people have not obeyed me. And so God is using the Rechabites as 
a lesson. This is actually really like a real life parable that's playing out in front of everybody's eyes. God is saying, look at these people, these interesting people, the Rechabites. They are so obedient that their ancestor spoke once about not drinking wine and living in tents. And for 250 years, because he spoke, they obeyed. But the Lord says, but I have spoken. The king of kings, I have spoken. And you have not obeyed me. And not just once, again and again, I have spoken. And you have not obeyed. And God is teaching us that if the Rechabites can faithfully obey these man-made laws from their earthly forefathers, then how is it possible that we don't obey God-made laws from our heavenly Father? And I think the Lord would ask similar questions of us today. Why is it that so few of us trust in his word anymore? And more importantly, obey his word. Uh, notable upholster, uh, George Barna, who's one of the best out there and most reputable, uh, he says that even though now it's, it's something like 70 plus percent of Americans still claim that they are Christians, that only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. 6%. Uh, what that just means is they can answer really basic questions about what Christianity is, that what the Bible says, about like where does sin come from, uh, who is going to heaven, who is Jesus, that sort of thing. 6%. And what that means is we have this weird conglomeration in our churches. We, we've got people who come to church, they come to a church like this. And they, they like God, they love Jesus, they like the concept of being forgiven by Jesus, but there are a number of things in the Bible where they go, I am not sure that I really agree with that. Or there may be things in their lives where they know God's call to them, what he has spoken, and yet they're going, but I'm not gonna do that. Now, sometimes we don't actually say that outright, but that's what our lives say. Since we're already intense, let me just give you a few hard topics as an example of this. Uh, the Bible speaks really clearly on a money for issue, for example. Uh, Jesus speaks on this issue um, almost more than any other topic. And yet for most people in the room, as soon as I even say that word, your blood pressure just went up a little bit, Right? And I would just ask, why is it that so many Christians aren't following God when it comes to this area? Is it because we don't know? That we don't know what God wants from us? For some of you that are just starting, that may be true, but I think for most of us, we know. We, we know what he has spoken, but we just say, okay, yeah, Lord, but my situation is a little different, and right now I got this going on and this going on, and we've thought about it, and with our actions, we have spoken, but God says, but I have spoken. I have spoken. Does that mean anything to you? All right, this is the same thing in Jeremiah's day. The Lord has spoken, and people are going, yeah, but here's our situation. They've devalued the word of God. It doesn't carry weight for them. And honestly, that's true for a lot of us, whether we admit it or not. Or take sex, for example, right? the great obsession of Western culture right now. God is not wishy-washy 
or unclear when he speaks about how he wants us to believe or live on this issue. He's crystal clear. But just like the people of Jeremiah's time, we are pulled in by a changing culture. See, that was happen, happening 2,600 years ago, too. Views were changing, and people were going, wow, they're much more lax than the other religions. They got temple prostitution. It just seems, and everyone was pulled in a different direction. They're going, the culture is changing. And to many of us, the same thing is happening again. And we're going, yeah, when I look at the Bible, it just feels kind of out of touch or antiquated or out of date. And the culture is kind of spoken. History has spoken. But the Lord says, but I have spoken. And does that mean anything to you? And we struggle to trust him. We struggle to live in obedience to him. I struggle to trust him and obey. And it's not because, it's not just because, oh, you know, we're sinful. It's really hard to be sold out or dedicated. To, no, no, no. That's actually why God brings the Rechabites in as an example here. People can be dedicated and committed. Jump on social media for a nanosecond, and you're going to see there are plenty of secular, non-believing people out there that are 100% committed to their social issue, right? 100%. And they're not going to wafer. Right? They're at every protest. They're at every march. They're constantly talking about it online. It might even be some strange issue that 90% of America disagrees with, but they are absolutely committed to their cause. And yet here we are, so many of us, as God's followers, trying to curry favor with society and blend in. See, that's why in this real-life parable, Jeremiah brings the Rechabites into the temple in front of everybody that was just acquiescing to the culture, because the Rechabites stay true to their values despite what was put right in front of them, in front of everybody. And remember, it was just their ancestor who had spoken to them. But God is saying to us, but I have spoken to you. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust him? If he's the king, we trust him. So where is it you just need to trust God again? I mean, maybe it's some belief that just isn't that popular anymore, but the Lord has spoken. Maybe it's a sin where you're just, you're honestly, you're walking away from God right now, but you just need to trust him. Maybe there's a, a place in your life where you know what the Lord is calling you to do, but you're just not doing it. He's spoken, you're going, I don't know. Look at verse 15 again. Verse 15, this is, this is what the Lord says to the people, and I, I want you to hear it again like the Lord is speaking to your heart, because that's what the word of God is. He says this, again and again, I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from, us to repent, your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods or other cultures or other ways or other ideas and serve them. He calls us to repent, to turn. Why? Because our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Our sin grieves. Our lack of trust in God, it reflects poorly on him. And we're supposed to turn back to God because, listen, his way is better. We obey God, we trust in him because we trust that his ways are right. He just knows better than we do. Right, if you've got little kids and, and you're, 
your uh, preschooler says to you, can I have 10 sugary treats right before bed? What do you say? You say, uh, no way, right? And they say, why? And you say, because I think I know a little bit better than you. Well, that gap between you and them is a million times greater between you and God. And God says, I think I know. The question is, when he speaks, do we trust? Do we trust that he knows? Or will we continue to think that we know better? All right, our chapter ends with a warning and a blessing. So 17 to 19 now. It says, therefore, this is what the Lord, the God Almighty, the God of Israel says, listen, I am going to bring on Judah and on everyone living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather, Jehonadab, and have followed all his instructions and have done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a descendant serve me. Which is an incredible blessing for their obedience. But for everyone else, time has run out. And the Lord has been so merciful, right? You read the Old Testament, it's been like a few hundred years. He's been saying, I'm, if, the, if you guys are going to continue to disobey me, this isn't going to work out. But now time has run out. Babylon is coming. The city is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be ruined. All of the people are going to be carried off to a foreign land and exiled. And they could have changed that. But they wanted to trust everybody else except God. And you better believe it's no different than what we're living through today. It, it just wasn't. The people were saying, okay, yeah, God's spoken, but so have some other religious experts. They have spoken. And there's this really famous family that everyone's following, and they've spoken, and my neighbors have spoken. What about my heart and my feelings? They've spoken, and the Lord says, but I have spoken. And eventually, these people, they reap the destruction from sowing a life of thinking that they know better than God. And now that warning comes to us. It comes to our nation. It comes to our families. It comes to us as individuals. I, I know this isn't necessarily a type of preaching you hear a lot in American churches, but this is how the Bible reads, okay? If we continue to live in arrogance thinking, God says this, but you know what, I know better, and I'm not going to do that. If we continue to live in arrogance, thinking that we know better, it will lead to your downfall. You've got to trust in God. Even if you're the only one left, you trust in God. He has spoken. Trust him, obey him. And you can do so because he is right. You can do so because he is good. And my friends, you can do so because he is merciful. Some of you in this room, you are rebelling against God. God has said, go this way, and you are going that way. You're in rebellion against him. You're running the other way against the king of kings. And how incredible is it that he says, and you can come back. You can come back to me. I've seen you walking away. I've seen your lack of faith. I've seen your disobedience. You can come back to me. 
and I will forgive you. And today you need to come back. You just need to come back. You know, one of my favorite parts of the, the prodigal son story, the prodigal who runs off into sin and messes up his life, he decides, I'm going to come back. And he sees the father. And what does the father do? Right, a lot of us in our culture, we think, oh, you're canceled, right? It's, you're dead to me. No, it says the father runs at his son. You can come back. It's repentance. This is the gospel. Sometimes we, we hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for us, and we, we're always just applying it to people who are thinking about choosing Christ. Christians, you preach the gospel to yourself. Because how many of us in this room, we've just been in this phase where we're not obeying the Lord. We're not trusting in him anymore like we used to. And we just need to repent of it. You preach the gospel to yourself. You know that even in these sins of disobedience, of rebellion, that guess what? God knew about them too when he sent his son Jesus for you. And for them he died. And for them he says, come back. You walk with me again. You repent Remember, repent is to turn, but you've got to make the turn correctly because sometimes people go, okay, I'm coming back to God, and then in their first few steps, they make the wrong steps. They go, I'm, okay, I'm coming back to God, so now I'm going to work hard. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to pull myself up on my bootstraps and get my life together. That's not, the, that's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's, okay, I'm in rebellion against him. I need to turn around, and now I am going to squeeze his hand so tightly and I'm going to walk with him, and I'm going to ask him to empower me, and I'm going to trust him like I never trusted him before. That is repentance. You turn and you trust in him. And sometimes, sometimes we just need a moment to do that. You know, sometimes when I tell people when they're thinking about following Jesus for the first time, I'll say, sometimes you just need a line in the sand moment. Sometimes as Christians, we need that. It's like John the Baptist by the Jordan River. He's calling people, repent, walk down. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do a Christian altar call, okay? Because sometimes even as Christ followers, we need a moment, a time to repent, to say, yeah, I've been walking in the wrong direction, and I need to repent. I need to grab his hand and come back again. There's some things in my life that I know he's telling me to do, and I'm just not obedient, and I need to come back to him. I need to trust him again. And if you're here and you just need that moment to say, I gotta repent. I want to get back walking with Jesus. He has spoken. And I want to trust him again. Then what I want you to do is anytime during this last song, I want you to actually get out of your seat and walk down to the front, anywhere on the ground in front of the stage here, and just pour your heart out to God. You can kneel, you can stand, you can raise your hands and worship, but just take this as an opportunity to say, I want to get back on track with him again. I want to trust in his word again. And then at the end, I'll come back up. I'll pray for who's ever down here. I don't know if anyone's coming up. It doesn't matter to me. My, my job is not to manufacture results. It's just to preach the word of God. And so whether there's one of you or 15 of you, I will pray for you if you need this to get back to the Lord again this morning, okay? All right, so uh, the, our worship band's gonna come on. We'll sing this last song. And if at any time during the song, you just need to say, God, I need to trust you again and come back to you, then you do that. And you don't need to feel embarrassed about that, Right? Right, because a lot of us need this, okay? And we just, we, we're all living in the grace of God. There's no one in this room that's like, well, I got my life together and I earned my way to Jesus. Okay, they're lying if that's the case because it doesn't work like that. So just walk in grace. All right, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, even from uh, deep in the book of Jeremiah this morning, how you speak to us and you speak to our changing culture. May we trust you again. God, we listen to so many other voices. We elevate so many other voices above yours. May we trust your word again. You have spoken. God, may we trust and obey.
We thank you for your endless grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.